Canterbury fails. Their Canterbury fails. Probably never read them. The Canterbury fails. Might be moralistic or boring. Might be rhetorically soaring. Their Canterbury fails. Yeah. Just when you thought it was safe to uh, enjoy your summer, it to, is not safe to, to enjoy no, your summer. No. Because while the Canterbury Fails, the Canterbury Fails was on a hiatus. We were hiating it. We were hiating it hard. We were hiating it wicked hard. Yeah, wicked hard. And um, but it's it's a summer micro episode of the Canterbury Fails because we have a special special announcement. Special announcement. It's very important. We thought we'd interrupt your summer. You're down at the beach. You're up in the mountains. You're in a sweaty apartment grinding your way through the last chapter of your dissertation. We feel you. We know you. I am sorry, guys. But we have some exciting news for you, which is this. Matt, do you want to deliver the exciting news? The exciting news is that the Canterbury Fails will be hosting a live episode at the Kalamazoo International Congress of Medieval Studies next May. You have no idea how it warms the cockles of my heart that somebody read our proposal for this and said, yes, <laughs> I don't, let's do it. I don't know who that person is. I don't is. either, but and, But if you're a great. listener, Thank you. the check is in the mail. <laughs> um, the, 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 we'll be hosting a, uh, a Canterbury Fails recorded episode of the podcast at the Kalamazoo Conference in May in Michigan. Um, and we will have um, a few panels, uh, pairs of you who will come on and talk about an unread, unappreciated medieval text. And then we will enjoy our, each other's company. Yeah. A little discussion, little debate, and then we're done. Yeah. Unfortunately, the legal ramifications forbid us from apparently having cocktails in the actual session. But... This we is are one of the drawbacks. Today, I know, but but when we tell you that there will be drinking afterwards at Kalamazoo, those Somewhere. of you that have been to Kalamazoo know that that is no lie. And it is just a good chance if you've ever wanted to get involved in the Canterbury Fails, if you've ever thought, <laughs> you've hey, long aspired. I wish that I were doing the Canterbury Fails, here's your chance. Yes. Come and we're excited. Text, come with a friend. So what we, what we need for you to do, if you're interested in this, first of all, you're welcome to let Matt and me know. If you want to tell us, drop us an email. No problem. Go on to the Simon Fraser University English Department website that is sfu.ca. I just want you to know I look younger now than I do in the photo. <laughs> no, the photo, the photo was somehow taken when I was older. I'm much younger now than yes. that photo. So, so, so the thing to do is obviously, you know, find Matt, find me. The good news is that both of us are on the executive, so it's the grad chair or the undergrad chair at the moment. Oh, that too. Um, and so just send us an email, and we can direct you to the right place to apply for this. But what we're looking for uh, is pairs of people who want to work together to unearth an unread, underappreciated, or underread and unappreciated work in Old English, in Middle English, or we could open this whatever. up even yeah. to, you Any know, medieval literature. You know, Middle, High, whatever, Occitan, have fun with this. Whoa. I know. So it is, it is very much up to you what you want to do, but we are excited to see what you've got in store. If you want to apply directly to the conference, you need to go to wmich.edu, that is w-m-i-c-h dot e-d-u backslash oh my god medieval congress oh it's not horrible 
Once you're there, click on the submissions link. The deadline for this is September 15th, That's but don't wait until September 15th oh, no. because this bad boy is going to fill up oh, so, so fast. fast. I mean, it's going to be like, there'll be ones of people interested. I know. Our listener mm-hmm. may come. Yeah. I'm excited. <laughs> It'd be great to see. I know. I'd Sad like to listener. meet you. Um, so, yeah, and we really, we really just want to have a, a series of short, fun conversations. We will record it live. We will then post it as it an episode. It will become a special summer issue of the edition, of whatever it is with a podcast, <laughs> of The Canterbury Fails. Yeah, we know it knows what it is with a podcast. <laughs> so a summer pod of The Canterbury Fails. Exactly. It's going to be exciting. And the, the other nice thing about this is that we have arranged so that it is counted as a roundtable. So for those of you that do Kalamazoo, you know that you can't do more than one paper panel. But you can do as many roundtables as you want. Yeah. So by all means, our feel table, free. Our we're table. an add-on. We our realize that we're not the main event. We're, we're not a moose bouche <laughs> for the Canterbury uh, for the rest of the. Our conference. table is round, and we want uh, <laughs> we want we'd love to hear from you. So please let us do now. What is fortunate or unfortunate, if the, as the case may be, is that um, your reward for listening to that invitation. Um, uh, that that call for your um, ideas, your proposals for the Canterbury Fails Kalamazoo. The, that is that we are both. We're going to do now a micro micro episodes uh, or whatever readings. Uh, David and I both have chosen an unpublished, on unread, underappreciated text, and we are going to talk about them. But like for five minutes, not this our is, usual no, thirty. You, thirty, he says. <laughs> As though we've, we've ever hit, gotten we've hit to 30. 30. We've hit 30. Have we hit 30? I think we've hit 30 and change. Maybe change. All right. Let's 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 knock these out. Okay. Let's knock this out. So you first. My, I brought today today's text uh, for, on the old English end of things is from uh, – it's a marginalia in Durham Cathedral Library A217. That is the often um, – it's, it's a beautiful gospels, the Durham gospels. Um, it is a – it's, it's a composite manuscript, however. So the first 102 leaves are a gospel text in a lovely uh, Northumbrian, very Irish-styled hand, mm. um, probably from Lindisfarne. The art and the paleography are very Irish-Northumbrian, that sort of fused <laughs> mix of artistic styles. You're talking about your manuscript like mine's going to have any art... Or, I mean, mine is mine paleography, is but that's mine it. is artless. However, soon, um, and it, it's at it, the text of the the text of the Gospels is of an Irish type, so it's not the sort of Romanizing, italophile version of the Gospels that we get in Wearmouth Jarrow at roughly the same time. Now, what's interesting is is that this is a composite manuscript because at the end of these hundred and two pages of of Irish style Lindisfarne style illuminated manuscript style gospels we get nine leaves of Northumbrian damn Wearmouth Jarrow Uncial gospel text um, so this, these both date to probably the late 7th or early 8th century these texts and um, what we know what we, what's interesting is we know that these two different gospel books were already um, bound together by the 10th century. And we know that because of our anti-hero, that is to say our hero of this little microtext. And that is marginalia um, on three or four leaves, I think, where a in a scrawling, scribbled 
messy, messy hands. I was going to say, that looks like it was written by a kindergartner with that, a somebody, stick. that somebody had given an espresso <laughs> to. Like, that is go. not great. It says, well, it says this a couple times. Boga, mesa preost, god mesa preost, right? <laughs> Boga is a mass priest. A good mass priest. And he writes this on three or four pages. He also writes, Aldred, god bishop. Wow. And now, so, and, and we know that Aldred was the Bishop of Chester Le Street in the mid 10th century. He died in ten, uh, 968. And, um, and so it is thought that, and, and a lot of these Northumbrian books from Lindisfarne, from where the Jarrow came to Chester Le Street as the monks fled from the Vikings over the centuries. So, so this is clearly was bound together. These two sections were bound together. And Boga. In, in, I, just, I, I have pictures. None of you can benefit from these photos, but I'm showing David. This is the Irish page. That's beautiful. Yeah, lovely. And then there's Boga's inscription. That is just so Boga. Trash. Yeah, here he <laughs> is. Garbage. This is my favorite one. Here's the Unseal Italian That's script. Beautiful. That is beautiful. It's that is so much better than anything we get in the 15th century. Oh hell yeah. This is like classicizing Italian, hardcore Romanophile. No, that is gorgeous. Um, Italian styled script. Boga does like, not like write the like that. Amiatinus. He does not write like Boga's that. Boga's writing in the mid 10th century, and Boga clearly hasn't been to school much. <laughs> it's and yet he's a mass priest, so it's kind of interesting. So that is my text. It's just this old English scribble on these pages. Is it possible that Boga is trying to write with his left hand when he's right hand dominant? Like, I mean, that's sort of what it looks like. I. I don't know. That's why we're here to talk about. So, I I would suggest I have a couple ideas about both. I mean, is this is this like the the sort of graffiti on the you know like Kilroy was here kind of thing? Like, so is, is this, this just graffiti? Boga leaving his mark? He's like, I am God Preos. <laughs> That's exactly right. It's Am Preos God Here we are talking about Boga. All these you know many centuries later Boga clearly has the last laugh because he's on the Canterbury Fails and most people aren't that's true so unless you want to be a member <laughs> in which case <laughs> wmish.edu um, I like it because he's he's commemorating himself right he's naming himself we think um, he is naming his bishop Aldred um, he is marking these in his time in 950 let's yeah. say it would be an ancient manuscript already yeah Right, like he would be, he would be writing in a several hundred year old book, well, two hundred plus year old book, at that point. So, but is this also? I mean, is there a way in which Boga is? I mean, would it have been considered, sort of defacing uh, a centuries old? I mean, is this like me, like scratching my name in the Arc de Triomphe or something like that, and be like, David was here. David so, is good medievalist. Like, <laughs> I mean, is that, you know, as I, as I, I mean, it's one thing to just do that in my, like, handy notebook. It's another thing to, like, scroll it so, into a two so million let's, year old let's play that. Let's, let's play that out. All let's right. say, there you are. David Goad medievalist. David Goad <laughs> medievalist. When you're standing there at the Arc de Triomphe, why do you choose to write on? Why do you choose to graffiti on the Arc de Triomphe? Presumably it is 1.30 in the morning. And you've had 95 glasses of Chablis. Because it's Paris. <laughs> and it's hot right now in sure. Paris. Sorry, guys. So what? What? why choose... I mean, it What is. would be the motivation for writing in on a monument of that sort? Right. And that's what I think is maybe part of the interesting dynamic is that it's not a mark of ownership, but it's a mark of commemoration. It's a mark that is deliberately trying to put, insert oneself into something that's much more... that is going to persist and last, right? Right. And, and we see this in all Anglo-Saxon poetry, Old English poetry, all the time, that 
all the wonders and joys of this life come and go. They fade away. People, friends, wine, glory in battle, yeah. gold, whatever. It all goes away. Right. But the word, the book, the gospel is eternal. So is this boga making some tiny, very scrawly, ugly, but kind of poignant claim on immortality. I like that. And I and then you've you've or is he just this... like sounding his barbaric yop onto the universe by <laughs> it scrawling could, it on it could them. be that. I mean it could be like my dog leaving a note for his friends. I mean it could be that very same thing. But I like the fact that you've taken this piece of writing Minimal. Minimal. <laughs> but I mean and I and I you know hazard to call it literature. Mm-hmm. But you've taken it and you have linked it, I think, in compelling ways to you know to motifs that really do drive much poetry of that period. So Boga is on it. I, I'm, Boga's on I'm, it. I'm down. I think that one funny thing about it is that he... So he writes in mostly in English, but he also records... There's a few Latin bits. Of Boga? Uh-huh. Boga writes in a little bit of Latin. And he's not very good at either. <laughs> and one wonders if he's actually a... If, you know, he's a priest. So were the standards Well, he of, says he is. Yeah. Were the standards of literacy and... and were they just... Or, and, and literacy and the ability to write the ability to write was it just were, were, were they in tough times in the mid 10th century I would have to assume the answer is yes to that I mean seeing this handwriting one would think well, it's, it's, right? it is I mean it is it, you know unfortunately uh, for our field it gets referred to from time to time as the dark ages and I always have wanted to resist that in various ways but looking at this it does seem like Boga did not have a lot of light in the room to go by as he wrote that. I, I feel like that was written in the dark. Yeah. So that's our microtext old English. All right, hit do, I, do I get to rate it? We hit it with the middle, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to rate it on a, on a scale of oh, one we're to rating five. It. Oh, yeah, we're rating it. I'm going to oh, rate it on a scale of one to five mass priests. Oh. Nice. Um, and because of the connections that you've made, I'm going to put that squarely in the middle at three mass priests. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm fine with it. By the way... Uh, I'm we are not, not doing this entirely sober. Uh, Matt and I have been. It's we don't. We're not going to do a cocktail here, but we have been drinking a lovely Daggerad, which is a local Burnaby brewery, mm. uh, a Union Graf beer cider hybrid with quince. Um, we can rate that on Mass Priests as well, um, but we can we can come back to that. Let's come back to that. Yeah, we we can. I will. In terms of rating Boga, I will also rate him three Mass Priests because I think that's the number of leaves he wrote on in. <laughs> Gospels. Okay. All right, hit me with this Middle English. So in Middle English, interestingly enough, you told me last night that we should yeah. be doing this. So I <laughs> went to the Index of Middle English Verse, and I fa- tried to find something that nobody had written on that I might know something about that might be interesting. So I don't even have the background that you have on Boga. I'm feeling a little bit um, – I'm feeling like I haven't quite done my due diligence here. But interestingly enough, I too ended up in Durham. Oh. Uh, this is from Durham University Library. I know. Crazy, right? Cousin – Five Roman numeral capital five three nine folio sixty four verso, which is a unique witness of this one little squib on a not unique text, which is Thomas Hockleave's series. Okay. So Thomas Hockleave, fifteenth uh, century, early fifteenth century poet, usually associated with Chaucer, and he makes those associations himself. He definitely wants to ride he Chaucer coattails. He to ride Chaucer's coattails, and he would have considered himself and has been often considered a Chaucerian. Um, he uh, writes a uh, really impressive work um, entitled The Series. It's a series of five short works. It starts out with My Complaint, 
Uh, Hockleaf's complaint uh, is that he has suffered from what he calls a thoughty malady, a, a wildness of the brain. We, we would now call this a mental illness yeah. um, that Hockleaf has suffered. And his complaint, interestingly enough, is not the mental illness. And, and this is one, I, I love Hockleaf. I am a big Hockleaf fan, as you know. Um, and one of the things that's interesting about Hockleaf's complaint is that it's not the mental illness that Hockleaf is complaining about. God has given him that mental illness. He takes what God gives him. He's not complaining about that, but he's better now. And nobody believes him. Yeah. And when you hear Hockleaf talk about how he's trying to deal with all of this, you can sort of see why nobody believes him. He's like, I look in the mirror and I try to make normal faces, and then I try to make that face out in the world, and nobody believes me, right? I mean, so Hockleaf, what Hockleaf is suffering from is not the mental illness itself, uh, whatever it might have been. It is the aftermath and the sort of social ostracism. Uh, that that has emerged from that mental the stigma of that mental illness. So that's the first part of the series. Yeah. Uh, the second part of the series uh, is a conversation with a friend. Um, so uh, this, the conversation with the friend begins a kind of process of amelioration for Hockleaf. It it seems to begin a kind of healing process, um, and all of this is bound up in systems of patronage. And there's there's a really rich. Um, uh, literature on Hockleaf. We're not doing Hockleaf, though. But 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 this is this is I think this is linked in important ways to Hockleaf. Okay. So then Hockleaf, Hockleaf then finishes the conversation with a friend, and then he he chooses to write three works to follow these two introductory sections for his patron. Um, and those works, two of those works are from the Gesta Romanorum, or the Gesta, pardon, Romanorum, um, which is a tale of Latin, uh, Anglo-Latin tales that were often translated and, and used and, and, and made into Middle English stories. And then the fourth section, so between sections three and five, is a learn to die. And on, about midway through the learn to die, yep. in a separate scribal hand, okay. some unknown poet slash scribe, yep has written the following six Middle English lines. All right, here we go. Wheel fortuna they favoreth, friendest thou hast plenty, the team obeying troublous, thou art all alone. Thou sayest culverous, doves, haunter, whose is mad wheat and dainty, to the ruinous tour almost cometh none. In empty a barnus, where fileth substanza, happeneth <laughs> no friend yeah, in whom is assurance. Right. So, so I, I think we should give a little translation. So well, fortune, when fortune favors you, you have plenty of friends. Um, but when times are troubled or bad, you have, you're, you're all, all alone. alone. You, you see doves haunt houses that are made white and dainty, clean yes. and pretty houses. Nice houses. Doves come. Doves are in those they houses. They're nice. But to the ruinous tower... None. Yeah. Almost none. Dove, doves don't come to the ruinous towers. No. In empty barns. Yes. Where faileth substance. Food, wealth, whatever substance is, which is a lot of things in Middle English. No friends, including the body of Christ, it turns <laughs> out. No friend happens by. No. Uh, in whom in, you can in, trust. In whom you can trust. There's yeah. no assurance. So this is interesting for a couple reasons. It is interesting because it has been added on to the foot of 64 verso. Um, in the middle of the learn to die section, the learn to die section is not Hockley's complaint. It is, it is a section on how to get one's soul right with God as one is dying. Um, it is obviously linked to the other pieces of the series, but this harkens back to, I think, Hockley's 
social ostrac sort of ostracism, the, the, the sense of isolation that he's been feeling in the wake of his of, of his thoughty maladia, um, because it speaks of the fact that you know he thought he had friends and now they're gone. He mm -hmm. thought he had people to trust, but now the times are fallow and and and, and times are bad. His friends aren't around. This also links back to Hockley's Molly Regla. Um, it, this is actually a persistent theme for Hockley. Hockley feels... So this this marginal edition is really of a piece. It is of a piece with Hockley. With Hockley's overall product. It is absolutely a part of his ooze. Sure, 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 sure. But it is not Hockley. No. What it is, it turns out, and, and there is a rubric that tells us this, oh. uh, this is... In uh, the 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 the, um, the scribe thought that this was a translation of Ovid's uh, De Ponto, which is a um, series of letters. elegiac letter poems that uh, that Ovid wrote when he was in what is now Romania, exiled from Rome on the Black Sea coast. But it turns out, as Matt told me, because I could not find this in. Duponto. Um, it turns out that this is from what is it, Matt? You, the Tristia. The Tristia, um, which are another series of letters <laughs> from exile from Ovid, where he is bemoaning his exile, his sadness, his isolation, yeah. and so forth. So I think this is interesting for a couple reasons. First of all, I think it's interesting that a scribe uh, who is presumably who is not the original scribe of the um, of the series, who is not writing the series into the Durham University Cousin Five Three Nine, whatever it is. Um, but an, an, another scribe who came along later, not unlike your... your Boga! <laughs> Maybe this was Boga. This is Boga's heir. Boga's great, heir great, to great. Boga. I, so, so, so Boga comes by and, and writes this on the bottom. And so he is making a connection from Huckleaf to Ovid. Yeah. Um, that, to me, is interesting because Huckleaf doesn't work hard to put himself in that lineage. Chaucer, Which Chaucer clearly, does. clearly wants to be an Ovidian. Right? Yeah. But so in some ways, you know, Hockleave is getting I don't know, is this sort of reflected glory, but but it's this is the the the, the links here are being made from Hockleave to Ovid in ways that I don't know have been addressed in Hockleave scholarship. I don't One know that there's a lot done on Hockleave and Ovid, and I would wonder if this is a project for somebody, maybe me, who knows? I'm you know, going to be done. Oh my God! I'm going to be, I'm going to be done as undergraduate. You heard it here first, folks. Um, so, well, I find it especially interesting because I, I mean, the because the Ovid's exile and Hockleave's pseudo exile. Yeah, I mean, it, is, it is effectively yeah. an exile at home. I mean, they also have to do with patronage. I mean, like a lot of these letters are to Augustus. Uh, sorry, the Ovidian. They're letters. not to Augustus. <laughs> They're two, sorry, they're two friends to right. try and please, 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 please tell Augustus, tell that. Augustus that I'm not all that bad. And, and like, and, and, and Hockley plays the same set of games with a patronage yeah. in his series. Well, he absolutely does. I mean, and so, you know, in the series, he's writing to, you know, it might be Duke Humphrey. It might be, I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah. any number of people that could possibly let Hockley off the hook. And what's very clear when you start to look at, at the work that's been done on Hockleave, and I mean, I'm thinking about Ethan Knapp's brilliant bureaucratic news book. I'm thinking of a number of works on Hockleave. Um, but what's clear is that the the, the sort of person in um, the, the the persona that Hockleave creates. I mean, Hockleave. There's no reason to think that Hockleave didn't actually suffer from the mental illness that he's talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But whether he did or did not, the persona that Hockleave creates in some ways is very much a Chaucerian persona, which is that that, that it does work, right? It does a kind of social literary work yeah. in which 
you know, Hockleaf can both bemoan his state and also beg for patronage. And so I think the connection that somebody has made from some nameless scribe has made from Hockleaf over Chaucer's head to Ovid, to Ovid yeah. I think is really interesting. And this little set of, you know, these six couplets or it's whatever a, it's it is. It's a nice... Quatrain and two couplets, whatever. The, um, yeah, it's a nice little it's it's, a nice little you know, piece of verse. Yeah, it's a good... It's a nice Ovidian translation. I mean, there's some translation issues if you're thinking of it as a strictly, uh, you know, cle- you know, straightforward translation, which it's not. But, um... But, you know, the images of the doves and their dainty little houses, which are now, you know, the, the ruinous tower. I think substance is an interesting word here. So it's I a think very it's, interesting I word. think it's, um, it's a nice little piece. So it's my turn to rate it. Yeah, you can rate it on doves. I'm going to rate it on a scale from doves to no doves. Doves. No doves. So it's a binary. It's just a yes or no. And oh. I'm going to give it doves. I give it doves. It's I clearly it got doves. doves. It's got doves. And I, I thought it was really uh, much, I mean, obviously, it's actual literature. Unlike my <laughs> scrawled, Boga. you know, bogus, like, you know, pissing contest all over the Durham Gospels. Um, so I'm going to give it doves, and I think it's time to rate the drink and get out of here. Drink's pretty good, actually. It's got that same sort of funky Belgian thing that Daggeray does Belgian. so well. I have what to do say you think of my... the cider and quince? Well, I don't know if I get a lot of quince. No, I, get... I don't get any quince. I, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Um, the it's, there's, there's, it says quince the on the nose, label. Maybe I, they just, like, put a quince there. I said this maybe. when I first sniffed it. There's a little bit of hot dog water in the approach. Which isn't my favorite flavor. <laughs> no, unless it's a hot dog, unless you're going in for a hot dog. In which um, case, you want that. But I, I appreciate um, the experimentation. It's got that robust, sort of clovey, spicy weirdness that mm-hmm. Belgian beers do. Um, uh, so I'm going to give it. What, what scale is this? Do we. Uh, dove dogs. Dove do- <laughs> Whatever. Um, I'm going to give it a three. Out of how many? I don't know. I just said three. All right. I, did, I, I like it better than you. I do really like the sort of funky, sort of there is funk. yeasty. There's some deep funk. It's a, it's a really interesting. And sour. So you talk about the, it's a sour, and I really do favor a sour. And you talk about the sort of clovey notes and the hot dog water on the nose, but it's what hits you at the back of the throat after you've finished your pint that's staying with me. And so I'm going to give it four dubs. Woo! I don't know how many dubs it could have, but it doesn't matter because we are done with yes. this micro episode of the Canterbury Fails. Yes, please. If you are interested in being on the podcast, we would love to have you just send us an email, send in a proposal, you know, you, a partner, a scholar, a friend, whatever, debating an unread medieval yes. text. That's what we want. Matt Hussey, David Coley, SFU.ca. You'll find us.